from Asia Society Switzerland, this is State of Asia, a podcast on the world's most dynamic region. I'm your host, Nico Lochsinger. This season, our guests include Leni Rogredo, until recently the Vice President of the Philippines, C. Raja Mohan, Senior Fellow at the Asia Society Policy Institute in New Delhi, India, and today, Tomohiko Taniguchi, who is Special Advisor to the former Prime Minister of Japan, the late Shinzo Abe. Asia is becoming a synonym of uncertainty and unpredictability. We discuss his worries about the region. Asia epitomized growth. Asia represented optimistic views about the future. No longer that applies. And we talk about who, according to him, is the biggest threat to the future of Japan. People like me, retiring, gray-haired, I am the enemy of the future of Japan. Welcome to the State of Asia. Tomohiko Taniguchi was special advisor to recently assassinated former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe of Japan. For years, he was the primary writer on Abe's foreign policy speeches. Taniguchi, who is now a professor at Keio University specializing in international political economy and Japanese diplomacy, joined Japan's Ministry of Foreign Affairs in 2005 after a career of 20 years as a journalist with Nikkei Business. I first met Tomohiko Taniguchi in 2018 at the Prime Minister's residence in Tokyo, where, over tea, he gave me a condensed overview of the region and Japan's role in it, which left me deeply impressed. I'm thrilled that he has agreed to join us for the inaugural episode of State of Asia. Tomohiko Taniguchi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Nico. Tomohiko, when former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe was tragically assassinated this summer, in remarks that you gave shortly after, you compared it to the assassination of John F. Kennedy in terms of the social impact that it will have in Japan. Could you tell us what you meant by that? The late Prime Minister Shinzo Abe accomplished a lot of things. No one anticipated that the life of Shinzo Abe would end in such a way and in such an abrupt fashion. So it was a freezing moment. People who um, face such sudden, tragic development always talk to each other. What were you doing when that happened? And that moment happened shortly before noon, the 8th of July, in a prefecture called Nara, Japan. I was working at home, writing about Shinzo Abe. My wife, upstairs, screamed, Abe got killed, got shot. And I could not believe that. Since that time, it is almost as if this world were a parallel world. I would like to believe myself that somewhere else Shinzo Abe was still alive and uh, Shinzo Abe uh, was working on many different issues. And that's not true, sadly. In 2012, December 2012, more precisely, when he made a second coming as prime minister, Japan was hitting its lowest point. 
in 2011, the nation was hit by the triple disaster of tsunami, earthquake, and nuclear fiasco. Japanese economy was not performing well. People lost confidence. And so Shinzo Abe started off by focusing his attention on rejuvenating Japanese economy. And he knew that no economic Uh, reconstruction project would be complete without encouraging young people. Shinzo Abe, by accident, had to play a role as CLC, by which it means, in my own term, cheerleader in chief. He therefore wanted to encourage young people to、uh, boost the morale of young working women. And he、um, continued to cheer up those people because he knew that、um, Japanese economy could not work well without people becoming more forthcoming and risk friendly to face up the challenges of today. You have called Shinzo Abe one of the most transformative leaders in Japanese history. How, in your view, has he transformed Japan? What is Shinzo Abe's legacy? First, internationally, Japan, being an island nation, does not have any luxury to choose one way or the other when it comes to future directions. If you look at Japan's neighborhood, it is not a safe place. From the north to the south, you have Russia, you have North Korea, and you have China, three of the nuclear powers, none of which has exercised anything akin. To open liberal democracy. And they are lining up and they are reinforcing each other. Never before has Japan faced such an emerging crisis. And so Shinzo Abe spent a lot of his political capital to achieve a number of things, including launching the new security bill that finally enables Japanese armed forces to work with US armed forces. And for that matter, any other friendly forces, including Australia, India, and so on and so forth, when it comes to uh, uh, dangers pertinent to Japanese national security. He knew nothing of that sort would be achieved without healthier finance and healthier economy. And so domestically, Shinzo Abe tried to do a lot of things to boost Japanese economy. At one point in 2019, shortly before the pandemic hit Japan, 98 out of 100 job seeking college graduates found decent employers. Female labor participation rate in Japan for the first time exceeded that in the United States. Shinzo Abe was transformative in that. Uh, for the first time in, I would say, th- three decades, he succeeded in、uh, Convincing people in the 20s and 30s that the future would be better. That sort of、um, sentiment is something that lacked in Japan for many、uh, years. Thank you very much. And I think you gave a fantastic overview already of the manifold changes that happened during Shinzo Abe's term. Last time you and I spoke was a little over two years ago in May 2020, just as COVID was taking over the world. Enough seems to have happened since to fill a lifetime, really. So, how do you see the state of Asia, the state of the region now, compared to two years ago? What have been some of the major shifts, and what are your hopes and worries about where things could go next? Asia 
epitomized growth. Asia embodied the benefits of globalization. Asia was synonymous to the interconnected supply chain. Asia, in a nutshell, represented optimistic views about the future. And I think、um, no longer that applies. Now, COVID 19 was one important element, and yet the most fundamental factor is the trajectory China seems to be taking. Xi Jinping is planning to extend his term as the most important member of the Chinese Communist Party by extending his term the third time this autumn. The next five years, As you can see, is going to be very much important, crucial even. Between 2022 and 2027, there is going to be another momentous year of 2024, in which the presidential election is due taking place in Taiwan. Recently published、uh, document of the Chinese Communist Party, the so called Taiwan White Paper. Clearly mentioned that China is determined to remove the current incumbent party. And so in 2024, one must be prepared that China would be doing its utmost to remove the、uh, current party and the current leadership、uh, from Taiwan's political arena. If you lose Taiwan, It will mean a lot of things. The vast seascape around Taiwan might become a no entry zone. And then you must anticipate how much value the US forward deployed forces would still have, not to mention Japanese armed forces. This is a slow moving but very much assured development. And the time is running out before it's too late. And I frankly don't know、uh, what sort of actions would be effective to counterbalance Chinese ambitious actions toward Taiwan and in and around the region. The only way that is available and that is possible for Japan to do, bringing Japan closer to like minded maritime democracies, notably the United States, Australia, and India, and possibly other European actors, then Uh, Japan and other nations would have a greater and more powerful signaling effect to deter China from embarking upon aggressive military adventures. Asia is becoming a synonym of uncertainty and unpredictability. And that's to do with the fact that the largest country. In the region and the fastest developing country in the world is flexing its military muscle in all directions, but concentrated in the Taiwan Straits. To go back to our conversation about Shinzo Abe, he, of course, during his tenure, commented on Taiwan quite frequently and several times said that the US should clearly state whether it would defend Taiwan militarily. In case of a Chinese military operation, is it wise for Japan and other countries to send such strong deterrent signals the way you describe? The conventional wisdom about China, with or without Xi Jinping, holds that 
the the Chinese Communist Party understands the language of power better than otherwise. Put differently, one must be strong when it comes to speaking with China. Shinzo Abe proved that that was the case. It took Japan to cement ties with、um, allies and partners. If Japan had remained very much weak and isolated and had no partner and no ally, you know, Japan would have long kowtowed to Beijing. If you refuse、uh, choosing a direction in which one must be very much、uh, obedient, kowtowing to Beijing, the only way for you to do that is to strengthen yourself and to strengthen yourself by. Allying and partnering with like-minded democratic、uh, maritime nations. Let's also talk about Southeast Asia. What are your expectations for Southeast Asia as a possible new economic powerhouse, as a center of political power in the region, and how will that impact the state of Asia? How will it impact the power balance in the wider region? The people in ASEAN leadership. Always say that the world must pay respect to the unity of ASEAN. I'm not sure how long this mantra should apply to the future of the region because there are discrepancies between maritime-oriented nations and land-based nations, notably Cambodia and Laos, and perhaps Myanmar as well. Uh, those nations could not dodge growing political influence from China、uh, sooner rather than later.、Uh, those countries would become the renminbi, yuan currency zone. In contrast, Indonesia is going to be a bigger still than Japan in perhaps my own lifetime、uh, as regards its sheer economic size. The challenge for countries such as Indonesia would be. Whether the minds of the leaders could catch up with the economic reality, whereby their economic power is surging, and so now is the time, I think, for Tokyo, for Washington D.C., and for Canberra to work very closely with the leadership in Jakarta, Singapore, Manila, and uh, uh, Hanoi to develop the common understanding. The common views about some of the important values, like the respect for human rights, freedoms, and the global outlook about what kind of world is going to take shape in and around the region. The fact that Japan has succeeded in、um, winning trust among the Philippines and Vietnam and Indonesia and Singapore when it comes to building quality infrastructure is very much a good、uh, starting point, and I think、uh, Tokyo should develop its ties more with the leadership in those countries. Given what you just said, am I correct in assuming that you are skeptical about the growing economic power of ASEAN translating into the organization becoming a more unified political force on the world stage? It takes very much a towering leader within and among ASEAN nations that could win trust from the ten member nations. But given the differences and the growing gulf between such countries as Laos, Cambodia, Myanmar, and maritime nations, 
I think it's, it's going to be very much difficult. ASEAN succeeded as largely an economic entity. Whether or not ASEAN could grow as a political one is an open-ended question, and I'm very much pessimistic as to whether ASEAN could become such a presence. One of Shinzo Abe's major foreign policy legacies is the Quad, the cooperation between Japan, India, Australia, and the US. It started out as a security dialogue, but now seems to be steadily growing into something with a much wider scope. Some already see the Quad uh, as an institution that focuses on safeguarding the economical order, for example, through supply chain coordination and enforcing fishing rights, and on serving the public good by providing support to Indo-Pacific nations in crises like the pandemic and climate change. If you had to talk to somebody who has been living under a rock the last 10 years and has never heard about the Quad, how would you describe it? The concept of Quad was to foster a security quasi-alliance. First of all, this is not an institutionalized uh, setup. It's just a loose gathering among four nations. But that said, each nation, India, Japan, Australia, the United States, has a political element that wants to show acceptable posture, ac acceptable to the Chinese. But one should be very much cautious. Quad must stick to its core identity of being an arrangement looking primarily at the security situation in the Indo-Pacific mm -hmm. theater. One of the key elements of the Quad, of course, is the bilateral Japan-India relationship. I was struck after the assassination of Shinzo Abe by the outpouring of solidarity and of condolence messages from India to Japan. Um, they seemed to me very deep, very broad, very heartfelt. And it seemed to me like a good indicator of the strength of the relationship between two nations. Could you position for us where you see this relationship being right now, sort of in a historical dimension? How has it changed over the last years? How do you see it develop in the future? What impact will it have on the state of Asia going forward? India is a unique case. It's uh, exercised, without exception, elections, uh, more or less peacefully, and the change of government for many, many decades. Uh, has been conducted by the uh, broad national elections. Shinzo Abe saw that in 20, 30 years' time, India would grow bigger as regards population. India would be bigger as regards economy as well. And Indian democracy has taken deeper root. It's better for Japan to bring Japan closer to the future giant in the Indo-Pacific region, both politically and economically, and possibly militarily as well. So Shinzo Abe was among the number of world leaders who first detected the future power of India and future influence of India. And I think that was very much appreciated by the leaders of India. And Shinzo Abe, when he was in office between 2006 and seven, went to Delhi and addressed the Indian parliament with a speech titled Confluence of the Two Seas. And it is widely recognized that uh, that speech 
was a、uh, genesis of the future geographic concept of the Indo-Pacific, and I think that much has been、uh, widely talked about and discussed by the pundits and leaders and opinion formers in Delhi. And I, I think that's one of the reasons why Shinzo Abe's、um, uh, death was viewed as a shocking event by many in India. In June this year,、uh, Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida, as well as the President of South Korea Yoon Suk Yeol, both attended the NATO summit in Madrid, which was the first for the leaders of both countries. At the summit, they also had a trilateral meeting with U.S. President Joe Biden, and at that meeting, Prime Minister Kishida said there should be an essential effort undertaken to strengthen the partnership between those three countries. Now it seems to me that the Japan-South Korea relationship in the past has always been weaker than, on the face of it, it should be. Those are both、uh, the liberal democracies in Asia;、um, they're very close. But of course, there's a lot of historic baggage that these two countries have, and that has influenced the relationship in the past. Can you talk a bit about where you see the challenges the relationship needs to overcome? And how important you would see the relationship to be for both countries going forward in the region. The new government in South Korea seems to be sending positive messages to Tokyo. However, people in Tokyo still remain very much skeptical about whether or not the new government in South Korea could deliver, because the new government is among the weakest. If you look at the parliamentary dynamics in South Korea. The、uh, ruling government is not being supported by the majority of the parliament, given the fact that accusing Japan, criticizing Japan, is embedded in South Korea's national discourse as a handy tool to shake the political power, shake the、um, incumbent administration. It's better for me. And for many people in Tokyo, to take much, much more time to see whether or not the incumbent government in South Korea could actually deliver what the president says he wants to deliver. Meanwhile,、uh, Tokyo is not、uh, sending discouraging、uh, messages to South Korea. It's, it's, it's just, it, it just remains relatively silent. The wait and see mode is something that you could see in Tokyo. We, you and I, we first met in 2018 in Tokyo, and I remember that at this conversation, you told me that the most important thing for the Japanese people is to have hope again. And then, of course, we spoke two years later in the very early months of the pandemic. You said that people were understandably very gloomy, and that Japan had to boost hope among its people, especially the younger generations. Now, today, you painted a picture of Japan and the region. Where many things are happening, many things are changing, but many challenges remain. Among all these challenges, where do you see hope for Japan,、um, but also for the entire region and especially its future generations? What makes you hopeful for the future state of Asia? Japan has to somehow reignite, rekindle the spirits, animal spirits of Japanese entrepreneurs in order to achieve. Growth in the Japanese economy. Hope is an important ingredient, especially in boosting Japanese economy. It goes without saying. In order for one country to grow,、uh, there are only three channels on the supply side: labor input, capital, stock, and productivity. 
None of these three elements is achievable without people becoming more forthcoming, without people becoming risk-friendlier, which is why hope must be nurtured among the Japanese. But I think it's very much difficult. You see, Japan is very much advanced in an ironical way because it is a rapidly aging society. Much of Japanese financial budget heads not necessarily to teenagers, to the 20s, Generation XZ, but to people like me, <laughs> retiring, gray-haired. and So I am the enemy of the future of Japan. The biggest challenge for any government of Japan is whether or not they can rewrite the social contract and whether or not they can put more financial resources to the future generations rather than to the dying and retiring generations. If you can have a Japan that grows and that stands taller in a very much difficult world, then by design or by accident, Japan might become a beacon, beacon of hope for the rest of the world. My hope, my own hope, is that Japan regains its economic growth trajectory and then um, becoming feeling more secure about the future and about the surrounding environment. That's why I say hope still remains very much important for the country and uh, for the region. Tomohiko Taniguchi, thank you so much for having joined us today. This was a fantastic overview of the state of Asia from, from a Japanese point of view. Thank you very much for having taken the time. And of course, we do look forward to seeing you in person at our State of Asia conference here in Zurich in November. Thank you again uh, for having been here. And we hope to see you very soon. I do look forward to joining you soon. Nico, thank you very much for having me today. That was Tomohiko Taniguchi, Special Advisor to Japan's longest-serving Prime Minister, the late Shinzo Abe. Tomohiko will speak in person in Zurich on November 10th at State of Asia, the flagship conference of Asia Society Switzerland. Asia is shaping the big issues of our time. The State of Asia conference will give you an overview of current and future developments in Asia, bringing together a selection of our most trusted experts from around the globe, including... Leni Robredo, until this summer the Vice President of the Philippines, James Crabtree, the Executive Director of the International Institute for Strategic Studies in Singapore, Agatha Kratz, who heads research on EU-China relations at Rhodium Group, John Ju, the Chief Economist for Asia at Swiss Re in Hong Kong, and C. Raja Mohan, Senior Fellow at the Asia Society Policy Institute in New Delhi. For a complete list of speakers, several of whom will also feature in future episodes of this podcast, visit our website at asiasociety.org Switzerland and click on the State of Asia banner or just click on the link in the show notes. On our website, you can also find information on the many other activities of Asia Society Switzerland and subscribe to our newsletter. Thank you very much for listening and hear you next time.